Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, October 23rd, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we're going to present a critical review of a sermon entitled Israel's Fingerprints by Bertrand Compare. Once again, we are going to make a presentation from the sermons of Bertrand Compare. This is our second consecutive such presentation, and we hope to both offer constructive criticism and also some clarification and edification of Compare's work wherever we can. Doing this, we will also present the critical notes of Clifton Emmerheiser from his own publication of Compare's work. These sermons were originally digitized by Gene Snyder, and then again by Clifton from Gene's printed copies, where Clifton was compelled to offer several of his own remarks as appendices. We have chosen to undertake this endeavor for two reasons. First, we, as Identity Christians, praise Yahweh our God. Recorded live. Praise Yahweh our God with much gratitude All recording for men has been completed. like Bertrand Compare, who helped to lead us to Christian identity truth, and upon whose shoulders we stand. On the other hand, no man being perfect, we can honor our teachers, but we cannot worship them. We do not see any man as infallible, and we put no man upon a pedestal. When a man cannot be criticized, when a man cannot be wrong, that is idolatry and not Christianity. All men being fallible, it is our obligation to test the work of our teachers and, when we can, to correct, to improve on, and to build upon that work in order to bring this truth which we have ever closer to perfection. We being men cannot actually expect to achieve that perfection ourselves, but in our endeavors to do so, we can improve upon and build upon what we have, while also hoping to correct the mistakes of those before us, as well as mistakes that we ourselves may have made in the past. I often pray that I'm the first guy to correct my mistakes. With this in mind, any criticism which we offer is not to tear down the work of our predecessors. Rather, it is to build upon and improve that work so that our identity understanding of the gospel of Christ is found to be without reproach, as Paul of Tarsus said in his epistle to the Ephesians, by the washing of the water of the word of God, the assembly of Christ may be found holy 
end without blemish. Before I begin, let me say a few things about the nature of my own studies, which I am certain that Clifton Emmerheiser can corroborate if any is ever needed. As he has known me to some degree since I first wrote him in 1998, when I was first presented with the writings of Compare, Capt, E. Raymond Capt, Wesley Swift, as well as some of the other early identity writers, I was fascinated. But I was not satisfied with that. I wanted to learn what they had learned firsthand. So I began my own independent investigation of the classics and the biblical and apocryphal literature, examining what these men had said with a critical mind. Having that approach was very rewarding. And I can independently attest in many ways that these men were indeed truthful concerning the identity and the history of the people of Israel. But that approach also provides me, in my own opinion, with the ability to evaluate their work critically. And nobody can do that without a thorough knowledge of the source material. They... The, the people, that is where the critics of Christian identity fail. All the critics of Christian identity that I have ever seen have not studied the Bible to the extent of these men. They have not studied or read the classical histories to the extent of these men. So, our critics do not know what there is beyond the frequently quoted passages. They have not studied the inscriptions like E. Raymond Cap did, so they do not know what is beyond what what is in those inscriptions beyond the frequently cited monuments. If they have read the classics and the inscriptions and still question our claims, they need to also study the Bible in the context of those other writings. The truth is clear once it is found by those who seek it. Compare has another short sermon entitled, Let's Examine the Evidence. And his approach was correct. One cannot honestly refute the claims of identity Christians until one examines the evidence which we cite to support those claims. But in turn, we would assert that if one examines the evidence honestly, one cannot honestly refute the foundational substance of Christian identity at all. So with that, we are going to start a presentation and criticism of Bertrand Compare's sermon, Israel's Fingerprints. The Bible, Compare says, the Bible is written to Yahweh's people, Israel. And, and let me say something as a digression right here. And, and we believe that, that, um, we believe in restoring the name Yahweh in our Christian dialogue. 
and we have reasons to support that. Compre did not use the name in his tapes. If you go to the Bertrand Compre project at Christagenia and listen to the sermons, he used the terms God, Lord, and Jesus. And that's fine. I would never criticize a man for that. But we prefer to use the original Hebrew terms mostly because we insist on claiming that Old Testament God and that Hebrew heritage as ours. It does not belong to the Jews. And nothing pisses the Jews off more than that. Well, Compre didn't use those terms, but Jean Snyder did take it upon herself to type those terms wherever Compre used the terms God, Lord, or Jesus. And that's fine. We don't really fault her for that. But we have to make the record clear that Bertrand Compare used the traditional English Christian terms for the titles of God and Christ and for the names of God and Christ. We will continue to use Yahweh in this presentation and Yahshua in place of Jesus. The Bible is written to Yahweh's people Israel. The common misconception that the Jews are all that remains of Israel makes the Bible seem false to those who hold this mistaken view. It is just as if you took a good history of the United States and wherever it said United States, you wrote in its place China. As a history of China, it is clearly false, but applied to the right nation, it is true. When the police had the fingerprints of a wanted man, they know the man whose prints match those they have is the one whom they seek. Likewise, when we find the people to whom all of Yahweh's promises to Israel have been fulfilled, we have found Israel. Today, the Anglo-Saxon and Scandinavian nations have Israel's fingerprints in every detail. Now, let me say that by saying Anglo-Saxon and Scandinavian, Compare must also be implying the Germanic nations, which he included in his description of modern-day Israel elsewhere quite frequently. These nations are Germanic nations. Now, of course, the old British Israel people would attempt to protest to that assertion that, that they have any relation to the German, to the modern German people, and they are wrong. Their protest is based on political reasons. Compré himself was descended from French Huguenots, and the Franks were a great branch of the Germanic people, many of whom are found in modern Germany as well. This, this illustrates a, um, a problem that's most apparent in Christian identity and often leads to the formulation of false impressions in the minds of listeners. When a man attempts to summarize something, if people make doctrines of the summary rather than actually go back and understand the entire body of a man's work and what he feels about a particular topic, then 
you could walk away creating false doctrines or false premises for doctrines from the summary. When we say the Anglo-Saxon and Scandinavian nations, Compare very often talked about Germany and the Germanic nations and included them with the children of Israel as well. Well, even that does not count all of the children of Israel as they existed in various nations in stages of their history, and we'll address that a little more later on. To continue with Compare, Yahweh first made his great promises to Abraham and repeated them to Abraham's son Isaac and grandson Jacob, whose name Yahweh changed to Israel. And Compare defines that as a prince ruling with God. That's a slight elaboration, but we'll just bypass it for now. Israel had twelve sons. The descendants of each son became a tribe, so that all the descendants of Dan became the tribe of Dan, the descendants of Judah, the tribe of Judah, and so on. After their long captivity in Egypt, they became one nation of twelve tribes, which continued until Solomon's death. Then the ten northern tribes revolted and set up their own kingdom, keeping the name Israel, while the old southern two-tribe nation was called Judah. Thereafter, their histories are recorded separately in the books of Kings and Chronicles, which, like the prophets, carefully distinguished between them. Now, for the most part, this is true. Israel and Judah are certainly distinguished. However, in many prophecies where it speaks of Israel, we must imagine that that includes Judah also, and most of Judah was taken into captivity along with Israel by the Assyrians. Where kingdoms or houses are being referred to, Israel and Judah are distinguished. But the people of Judah are every bit as much Israelites as the people of Ephraim or the other tribes, while the later Jews, the modern Jews of today, and even the Jews of the time of Christ, descended from Judah in part, and while some of them in the time of Christ were Judah, none of the original tribe of Judah were ever actually what we today may think of as Jews. And this is another problem with, and, and we'll discuss this further shortly, with summarizing a topic so that you present it to the public. When later adherents take this work, and, and this happens all the time in Christian identity today, and make doctrines based on Bertrand Compare, they're doing it from Bertrand Compare's summaries. But Compare didn't write books, Compare didn't leave citations, and Compare didn't write dissertations. We have to understand that these, Compare was a trailblazer, these things are summaries, and we need to take this work and build on it and advance it further. Because the nature of his summary leaves a lot of room for mistaken impressions which lead to error. About 715 BC, 
Compre continues, Israel was captured by Assyria and deported to the lands around the south end of the Caspian Sea, never to return to Palestine. The authorized version of the Bible doesn't record their further history. But the prophets, and, and Compre is talking about the historical parts which we have in our standard Bibles. But the prophets continued for several centuries to give further prophecies of Israel's great future. And we can actually establish that those prophecies extend well through the medieval period and into modern times. The Apocrypha, 2 Esdras 13, verses 39 through 45, records their migration as far as the Sereth River a northern tributary of the Danube in Romania. Other historians of the time record their migration into northern Europe, northern and western Europe, and the British Isles. Compare is correct concerning the apocryphal book to Esdras and chapter 13. But it must be warned that what Bible students know as to Esdras is actually more than one book, it's at least two and actually possibly three different works. And the disparate parts were concatenated, meaning that they were stuck together into one book at an early time. Those parts may not have the same original author. This portion, chapter 13 of 2 Esdras, seems to be a historical account mixed with a literal interpretation of earlier prophecies concerning Israel, which are incorporated into a messianic prophecy. Whether the messianic prophecy turns out to be true in the manner it describes is irrelevant, as the historical portion remains true. The verses Compare cites read thus from verse 39 of 2 Esdras chapter 13. And whereas thou sawest that he, meaning the Messiah, gathered another peaceable multitude unto him, that other flock, evidently, that he speaks of in John chapter 10, those are the ten tribes which were carried away prisoners out of their own land in the time of Hosea the king, whom Salmanasar, the king of Assyria, led away captive. And he carried them over the waters, so they came to another land. But they took this counsel among themselves, that they would leave the multitude of the heathen, or the nations, and go forth into a further country where never mankind dwelt, that they might there keep their statutes, which they never kept in their own land. And they entered into Euphrates by the narrow places of the river. For the Most High then showed signs for them, and held still the flood till they were passed over. For through that country there was a great way to go, namely of a year and a half, and the same region is called Arsareth. Then they dwelt there until the later time, and now when they shall begin to come, that's the literal interpretation of the prophecies in Isaiah, 
which talk about the gathering of Israel. And this is also may this also may be correlated to the chapters in Isaiah speaking about where Yahweh was going to send the children of Israel. Isaiah sixty six nineteen and many of the other places following Isaiah chapters 48 and 49. Then they dwelt there until the later time, and now when they shall begin to come, the highest shall stay the springs of the stream again, that they may go through. Therefore sawest thou the multitude with peace. The word Arsareth certainly must be Hebrew for the mountains of Sareth. The word Ar or Har, referring to a hill, a high place, or a mountain in the Hebrew language. To this day, there is a Siret River, which flows through Romania, which has its sources in the Carpathian Mountains in Ukraine. There is also a river with practically the same name, a Seret River in the Ukraine, a different river, which is a tributary of the Dniester. Whichever one Ezrus refers to is immaterial, as this entire area became the dwelling place of great numbers of the tribes of the Cimmerians and Scythians as they migrated from Asia very shortly after the deportations of the children of Israel. Compare said here that other historians of the time record their migration into northern and western Europe and the British Isles. And this is also true. But in order to realize that truth, one must understand the names by which the Israelites were called by the other nations, the nations which produce those other historians, and the inscriptions which support their histories. So, while the other historians support our assertions, as Compare has stated, they did not use the name Israel. They used names such as Chimerians, Sakans, Scythians, Danans, Phoenicians, and Trojans. All those names belong to various branches of people, of the people of Israel, and we can demonstrate that each of those people were actually portions of the ancient Israelites. Compare continues by saying, over a century later, Judah was deported to Babylon, not Assyria. And this is an import, important statement because we believe that he's introducing an important error, possibly because he's making a simplified version of the story and not necessarily by his own fault. Over a century later, Judah was deported to Babylon, not Assyria, for 70 years as Jeremiah had prophesied, and Jeremiah indeed prophesied that. Afterwards, some of them came back to Palestine. Neither Bible nor secular history records any destruction of Israel, and there he must, of course, be speaking of the people of Israel, not of the place, not of the kingdom. And he says, to the contrary, it was well known in Yahshua's time that they existed in great numbers 
elsewhere. The proof of Compré's statement that it was well known in the time of Christ that they existed in great numbers elsewhere is actually found in Josephus's Antiquities of the Judeans in Book 11, where speaking of the time of Ezra, he says, when Ezra had received this letter, meaning a letter from the king of Persia, he was very joyful and began to worship God and confess that he had been the cause of the king's, meaning God, had been the cause of the king's great favor to him, and that for the same reason he gave all the thanks to God. So he read the letter at Babylon to those Judeans that were there, but he kept the letter itself and sent a copy of it to all those of his own nation that were in Media. And when these Judeans had understood what piety the king had toward God and what kindness he had for Ezra, they were all greatly pleased. Nay, many of them took their effects with them and came to Babylon as very desirous of going down to Jerusalem. But then the entire body of the people of Israel remained in that country, meaning that they didn't go down to Jerusalem. Therefore, there are but two tribes in Asia and Europe subject to the Romans, while the ten tribes are beyond Euphrates till now and are an immense multitude and not to be estimated by numbers. Where Josephus says, until now, he's not talking about the time of Ezra, he's talking about his own time. And Josephus was writing Probably, he was writing antiquities probably about 50 or 60 years after the Passion of Christ. Now, Josephus seems to have called those people in media Judeans here, as being religious Judeans. The word Judean was the colloquial term of his time to describe not only the people of his province, but also the people of his religion, as well as the people of his own nation. So, whenever we see the term Judean in ancient literature, or the Bible, the literal as well as the historical context must be understood in order to see how the word was used. And Josephus did indeed say Judean, even though it is translated Jew, because modern translators take it for granted that these Jews of today are not only Judeans, but are Judah. And both conclusions are wrong. None of the people beyond the Euphrates at this time in all of the Greek and Roman writings, where they are indeed described many times, none of those people were ever called Judeans or Jews in any writing. In fact, Josephus wrote his other book, Wars of the Judeans, for the same people. He originally wrote that book in Aramaic with the hopes of winning those people 
beyond the Euphrates, that innumerable multitude that he spoke of, he hoped to win them to the cause of the Judean revolt against Rome in 65 AD. And he did not address that book to Jews. He addressed that book to the upper barbarians. And the contents of the book as well as other of Josephus' writings, reveals that the Scythians and the Parthians and the Alans, the Germanic tribe of the Alans, were among those upper barbarians of Josephus. But large numbers of these people had been migrating away from that area beyond the Euphrates and traveling around the Black and Caspian Seas and into Asia and Europe as the Greek records record in many places and they had been doing so for many centuries but Josephus was apparently unaware of that or if he was aware of that he never wrote it Further on, we will discuss another facet of Josephus' statement here, which is his rather inaccurate description of the division of the tribes. The history of the children of Israel is very difficult to summarize in just a few paragraphs, even in just a few books, and even in a one-hour sermon, and Compare's sermon here is probably 30 minutes, even Josephus summarized that history too briefly, since his primary concern was Judea, and Compare attempts it here with even greater brevity. But where he oversimplifies the history of Judah, and as we see it as we see in Josephus, it was very frequently oversimplified in this manner. It indeed seems to have caused some confusion among identity Christians as they try to understand the role of the people of Judah. It is evident in Scripture that a greater portion of Judah, 46 fenced cities of Judah, and certainly many villages and people of the surrounding countryside, were indeed taken into captivity by the Assyrians. And that number was very likely a greater number than the remnant of Judah, which was later taken by the Babylonians. So where Compare says that Israel was taken into Assyrian captivity, and not Judah, he leaves a very mistaken impression because more of Judah went into Assyrian captivity according to Second Kings than had gone into Babylonian captivity. Much of Judah, which had gone into captivity, went along with Israel into Assyrian captivity. Only the inhabitants of Jerusalem were left behind. The inhabitants of Jerusalem, existing of Levites, Benjamites, and people of the tribe of Judah, that remnant was still called Judah. 
and that remnant continued to represent the kingdom of Judah in history and in much of the prophecy. Therefore, as we have just witnessed, even Israelites, such as Flavius Josephus, and he was indeed an Israelite, oversimplified the nature of these deportations and these captivities. And Flavius Josephus referred to the remnant as the two tribes, while informing us that ten tribes had gone beyond the Euphrates. But the vast number of Judahites, and many Levites and Benjamites along with them, who went into Assyrian captivity, cannot be disregarded. In reality, as the Old Testament itself describes, twelve tribes went beyond the Euphrates, while a large remnant of three tribes and a much smaller remnant of some of the others, and we will discuss them shortly, had either returned to Jerusalem or had remained in Israel and Judah and, at the time of Christ, were subject to the Romans. To return to Compare for one single statement, referring to Israel, Compare then says, Yahshua spoke of their continued existence, separate from the Jews, in Matthew chapter 10, verses 5, 5 6, and 23. Now, there is much biblical and historical evidence that Israel did indeed exist separately from the remnant kingdom of Judea. But these verses from Matthew chapter 10 are not a good reference in this regard. Here, Compare has failed to distinguish the use of the term Israel in context. In Matthew chapter 10, where Christ says Israel, he refers to the people of the circumcision of Judea only, because that is how his apostles understood the word Israel at that time, and that could be established in Scripture. Later, in the book of Acts, we do find the apostles among the Samaritans. Compare is referring to Matthew chapter 10 verses 5 and 6 here, where Christ had said, Do not go into the cities of the Samaritans, but go instead to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In the book of Acts, we find the apostles among the Samaritans, preaching to the Samaritans. Since, after the crucifixion, the lost Israelites, who were not called Israel, the Samaritans were not called Israel, were being reconciled to Yahweh in Christ. It says in Acts chapter 8, verse 25, And they, meaning Peter and John, when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, returned to Jerusalem and preached the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. So, 
in Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, where Christ tells the apostles not to go to the Samaritans, but to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Acts chapter 8 is in direct conflict with that if you take it out of context. But if you put it into its correct biblical and historical context, there is no conflict. The Assyrians. Okay, let's wind back a, a little more. In John chapter 4, we see the Samaritan woman at the well claims to be a daughter of Jacob, and Yahshua Christ does not disagree. Rather, she goes and gets her kinsmen, and he preaches to them. The Assyrians had indeed left a scattering of Israelites behind in the land, which were later found among the Samaritans. These Israelites were despised by the Judeans because they no longer had their genealogical records. So they were not considering, considering them as Israelites. The genealogical records were destroyed by the conquering Assyrians. But it is evident in history that at least some of them, and this is in the pages of Josephus, at least some of them retained the circumcision and other aspects of their heritage. Just as the woman at the well in John chapter 4 announced her expectation of the Messiah. So they retained certain aspects of their heritage and the Sabbaths and even aspects of the law. But the Judeans despised them and would not consider them to be Israelites. Peter and John were there in Samaria in Acts chapter 8. But the first uncircumcised people that Peter preached to were those, by his own words, were those of the household of Cornelius after he received his vision in Acts chapter 10. The Samaritans were Israelites, these, or, or at least a portion of the Samaritans, were Israelites of the circumcision, who certainly were never called Jews. The Judeans and the Edomite Jews hated the Samaritans and would never admit them as Israelites. In these passages from Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, we read, These twelve Yahshua sent out, commanding to them, saying, You should not depart into the way of the heathens or nations, and you should not enter into a city of the Samaritans, but rather you must go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is what we had written in that of that passage in our commentary on the Gospel of Matthew given here four years ago, I think. Here is one of the most misunderstood verses in Scripture, even among Christian identity pastors. Many think that the command not to go unto the nations conflicts with the idea that the nations of the Greco-Roman world descended mostly from the ancient Israelites, but it does not. Firstly, Christ was not yet crucified, and therefore he was not yet reconciled to a divorced Israel. 
So the me- who which were not considered Israel. So the message of the gospel was not yet prepared for them. This is the ministry of reconciliation which Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and elsewhere. Secondly, Yahshua is talking to the apostles on terms that they would understand. And at this time, they understood Israel to include only the circumcision among the Judeans the Israelites in Judea. The proof of that is in Acts chapter 10 and Peter's need for the vision which he later received from God that following Matthew chapter 10 by at least four or five years. The apostles being unlearned in literature by their own admission were not aware of the identity of the long ago dispersed Israelites which the revelation of was the entire reason for the later ministry of Paul of Tarsus it was his task to reveal and to bring the gospel to the lost Israelites of the uncircumcision. The complete destruction, says Compare, the complete destruction of the Jewish nation, I would say the Judean nation, by the Romans and their subsequent troubles as outcasts in every nation are not a failure of the prophecies and promises to Israel. But very accurate fulfillment of the prophecies about the nation of the Jews, and I would say Judeans. As we had said, it is hard to summarize this history in just a few paragraphs. Actually, there were good fig Judeans and bad fig Judeans. In Jeremiah chapter 24, we read in part, from verse 3, Then said Yahweh unto me, What seest thou, Jeremiah? And I said, Figs, the good figs, very good, and the evil, very evil, that cannot be eaten, they are so evil. Again, the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Thus saith Yahweh, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, so will I acknowledge them, that are carried away captive of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans for their good. For I will set mine eyes upon them for good, and I will bring them again to this land, and I will build them and not pull them down. There are good figs returning to Judea with Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel who would be built and not pulled down. I will plant them and not pluck them up, and I will give them a heart to know me, that I am Yahweh, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return unto me with their whole heart. And as the evil figs, which cannot be eaten, they are so evil, surely thus saith Yahweh, 
So, and this is a very important passage because a lot of Christian identity pastors have the mistaken notion that Zedekiah and the other kings and princes descended from David were bad figs. And that's not true. That's not what Jeremiah is saying. Yahweh says, So, concerning these evil figs, will I give Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and his princes, and the residue of Jerusalem that remain in this land, and then to dwell in the land of Egypt. So, good Judahites, people of Judah's blood, are being given to the bad figs. And that is certainly descriptive of the race mixing which happened between the real tribe of Judah in the two centuries before the time of Christ, and the Edomite bastards and the Canaanites up until the time of Christ. And those people are the people we call Jews today. And I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth for their hurt, to be a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse in all places where I shall drive them. If we examine this carefully, we see that some Judahites were to be given over to the bad figs for their punishment. They were bad figs in Jeremiah's basket, but the bad figs themselves were never really Judahites. The fulfillment of this prophecy begins with the time of Christ and the destruction of Jerusalem which Christ speaks of in Luke chapter 1, where speaking of the same people that Jeremiah said would be a taunt and a curse and, and a proverb and a reproach wherever they went, Christ says in Luke chapter 21 verse 24, speaking of the same people, and they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and they shall be taken away captive into all nations. He's basically saying the same thing about them that Jeremiah said. And then he goes on to speak of Jerusalem and says that Jerusalem shall be tread upon by the heathens or the nations until the times of the heathen should be fulfilled. On the other hand, the good fig Judeans that would be built up in Jerusalem and not pulled down. They must have been those who accepted Christianity. And when they accepted Christianity, as Paul said, you're no longer Judeans or Greeks, you're all one in Christ, they would have lost their identity as Judeans. To return to Compare, he says, With this history in mind, let us examine the prophecies and promises to Israel. Yahweh's promises to Abraham were unconditional. Yahweh must fulfill them or break his word. For he said, I will make of thee a great nation. Thou shalt be a father of many nations, and I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant. Thy seed shall possess the gates of his enemies. Yahweh did not say he would do this if or perhaps they were unconditional 
promises and had nothing to do with the law. These covenants were repeated unconditionally to Isaac in Genesis chapters 28 and 35. They were repeated unconditionally to Jacob, to whom Yahweh also said, Thou shalt spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in thee and thy seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that could only be a reference to those Genesis 10 families, because where the descendants of Noah are listed, we are told these are the families of the earth. The families of the earth are defined in Genesis chapter 10. If you try to add to that definition, you are corrupting the word of God. If you're not a descendant of Noah, who can trace your nation's history back to Genesis chapter 10, you're not one of the families of the earth in the promises to Abraham. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee. Compare says, or continues, there can be no evasion of these promises, and Yahweh always honored them, even when the children of Israel worshipped the golden calf. In many places, the New Testament recognizes these promises as still being in force. In Romans chapter 11, Paul states, I say then, has Yahweh cast away his people? God forbid. Yahweh has not cast away his people, which he foreknew. In Romans chapter 9, verse 4, Paul states, Who are Israelites? Speaking of the people that he has concern for in Judea. He has concern for his brethren according to the flesh. Who are Israelites? To whom pertains the adoption and the glory and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the services of God, and the promises, whose are the fathers. Now I say that Yahshua was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of Yahweh, to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. If these promises are false, then the Bible is false. But if they have been fulfilled, the people to whom they were fulfilled are identified as Israel. And that's absolutely true. God is not going to make promises to Abraham and hand over and, and create many great nations from some other people. Here, of course, Compare did well. Some people get confused over the conditional promises and the unconditional promises. The unconditional promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they came first, and the word of God does not change, nor can it fail. However, the conditional promises, which came later, they only concern the maintenance of the kingdom. The children of Israel were promised their own kingdom and government under Yahweh if they kept his law. When they failed, they were deprived of that kingdom. They were punished in captivity and they were scattered abroad. However, 
the promises to the fathers, which were unconditional, would all be fulfilled in spite of this circumstance, in spite of the disobedience of Israel to the conditional promises. Speaking of the unconditional covenant, which Yahweh had made with Abraham, Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 17, Now, this I say, a covenant validated beforehand by Yahweh, the law which arrived after 430 years does not invalidate. So no matter how we break the law, the unconditional promises to Abraham, which we are the beneficiaries of, still stand. Paul says that the law does not invalidate those promises by which the promise is left idle. So the promise is certainly not left idle simply because we've all broken the law. So in Romans chapter 4, and in part in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul reveals how the original unconditional promises to Abraham were indeed fulfilled in the nations of Europe. To return to Compare, he picks up with Hosea, and he says, in Hosea 1.10, Yahweh revealed Israel would become sons of Yahweh. We have a serious issue with that, with that language. They would accept Christianity, saying, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass, in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, Ye are the sons of the living God. So the people that were not his people are only Israelites, and only unto them will it be said that ye are the sons of the living God. Of this, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 tells us, But when the fullness of time was come, Yahweh sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. These cannot be Gentiles, for Romans 9, 4 tells us that the adoption pertains to the Israelites. Therefore, we must look for the Israelites among the Christians. The prophecies and promises to Israel have been fulfilled by the Anglo-Saxon and Scandinavian countries. Now, while this is true to a great degree, here in the language which he used, Compare expresses an attitude which we believe is quite dangerous. We cannot accept the mistaken Judaic notion that anyone may become a son of God. Not even Israelites can become a son of God. 
However, Compare did better in another sermon entitled The Sons of God, where he himself defined the biblical usage of the Greek word translated as adoption in the King James Version. And Compare said that adoption is the coming of age ceremony for a lawful son. Now, he's embellishing, but that's an agreeable definition of adoption. Almost. Oversimplification is often dangerous, and sometimes it leads us to promote mistaken impressions which we may not mean to promote. Compre had it right in one sermon, but using the word become as, pe- as if people could become the sons of God is very wrong here because it opens the door to the Judeo-Christian ideas of universalism. And as soon as somebody figures out somebody could become the son of God, they'll be trying to make the sons of God out of niggers. There's no doubt. Clifton Emmerheiser, in his publication of this sermon, made the following note in reference to this. And he says, this is a different topic, but Compare quoted Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5 thusly, but when the fullness of time was come, Yahweh sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption, as it says in the King James Version, the adoption of sons. And Clifton says, there are a couple of things to note here. One, that only those under the law could be redeemed, and that two, his son, Yahshua, was made of a woman. Some identity teachers claim that Mary didn't supply any seed to the genetic makeup of Messiah, but this passage says otherwise. Now, Compare, and that's the end of Clifton's note, Compare may have received his mistaken notion from John chapter 1, where it says in the King James Version, in verse 12, but as many as received him, meaning Christ, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And we must also beg to differ with that translation. And I would assert that that passage may just as accurately from the Greek be translated, but as many who received him, he gave to them the authority which the children of God are to attain to those believing in his name. Nobody becomes a son of God. In any event, the children of Israel were already the children of God, as the word of Yahweh professes in Deuteronomy chapter 14. And this is this idea is also repeated in the Psalms. It's repeated in Isaiah. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, Yahweh says, Ye are the children of Yahweh your God. And then he gives them instructions because they are the children of Yahweh their God. Adam himself, As it says in Luke chapter 3, Adam himself was a son of God. Even the Jephethite, Ionians, the men of Athens, 
in Acts chapter 17 were described by Paul as children of God. Paul agreeing with their own poets. Paul was speaking to pagans in Athens. He wasn't speaking to believers, and that alone proves that the King James translation of John 1.12 is at fault. Nobody becomes the sons of God. He gives to us the power that the sons of God will have in the future, or to attain. That's what the Greek says, and while either reading from the Greek could be correct, our reading is the better reading because it agrees with Paul's words in Acts 17, with the words of God in Deuteronomy, in Isaiah, in the Psalms, with Luke 3.34, and with the entire concept in Scripture. In the ancient world, it is apparent that a man had a right as to whether or not he recognized his sons and daughters as children. A man could have biological children, but he had a right not to recognize them as his children. That right transcended the biological reality. The children of Israel were recognized as the children of Yahweh when they kept the law, and when they failed to keep the law, they were denied that recognition, and God put them away. In Christ, those same children of Israel find themselves once again recognized as sons of God. This is why Paul says that the huiothesia, which is the Greek word, which even Bertrand Compare understands and explains, means the position of sons. This is why Paul says that the huiothesia, which is the position of a son, is for those same children of Israel. The word should never have been translated adoption, and in Greek, the word was never used in secular Greek, to describe the act of adoption. Another word, ispoiesis, was used to describe that. Likewise, bastards may have been biologically children. In Ezra chapter 10, bastards were biologically children, but they were not at all to be recognized as children. So, today we have this concept that men have children, and, and that no matter what, they're responsible for those children all of their lives. That's not a biblical concept. In the, in the Old Testament and the New, you could have a son, but that doesn't mean simply because he's your biological son that he deserves the position of a son in your household. The man has the right to take him in or to put him out. Next, Comparate enumerates some of the fingerprints of Israel. He says first, concerning the children of Israel, the true children of Israel, the title of this paper being the fingerprints of Israel, first, they are Christians and have been from early times. And, of course, we would agree. Christ said, my sheep 
hear my voice, the apostles went to the nations of dispersed Israel, as nearly every one of Paul's letters attests. And these were the lost sheep of Israel who were to be gathered in Christ. The history, archaeology, prophecy, and gospel all attest to the identity of Israel, and once they are all properly correlated, there should be no question concerning the true chosen of God. And Compare says, second, they are a nation and a company of nations. And this paper is very properly based on the idea that if we are to locate the children of Israel in the world today, we have to go back and see the prophecies concerning Israel and who has fulfilled them in the world today. Compare says, the United States is the largest civilized nation in the world. The British Commonwealth of Nations is legally a company of nations. The Scandinavian nations, all of the same blood, can be identified by their history and their heraldry as the tribes of Dan, Benjamin, and Issachar. And, and I've, um, I've really tried to find some dates for Compare's sermons. And I haven't been able to do that as of yet. It's not in Gene Snyder's writing. It's not in her books. I've listened to the audios on the sermons. There are no dates. I wish there were dates so that perhaps we could see whether or not it was a progression in Compare's understanding. Because when he talks about Israel's fingerprints, he seems to discount many nations derived from the Israelites who, it can be proven historically, are every bit as Israelite as the United States, Great Britain, and the Scandinavian nations. In other sermons, Compare mentions in diverse places some of these nations and admits they are Israelites. But once again, this is the difficulty we have in summarizing something. Now, there's another point here in, in his second item in this list. Many people in Christian identity have been tempted to identify particular European nations with particular Israelite tribes. I would not do that. I've always resisted doing that, and I don't believe it is wholly accurate to do that. And, and I've seen people say, oh, the Finns are Issachar. Oh, no, the Swedes are Issachar. Oh, the France is Reuben, and Italy is Gad, and this and that. And I would never do that, knowing from history that all these tribes were mixed together in, in the Assyrian captivity and didn't necessarily break up and travel to Europe in the same way that they existed in ancient Palestine because of their being amalgamated together. I would never try to do that, even though... I would indeed concede that some European countries, especially Germany and England, seem to exhibit traits or fulfill prophecies which were made 
of certain tribes. I will concede that, but I still resist identifying one nation entirely with one tribe, or one tribe entirely with one nation, and especially England, because even though the English people seem to fulfill the prophecies given to Joseph, to Joseph's sons, England is the most mixed white nation if you actually understand its history, there are Slavs in England, there are Germans in England, there are Phoenicians in England, there are Trojans in England. England is the most mixed nation in history before America. Mixed all from white tribes from Europe, but nevertheless, it, it's like an early profile of what America later became, where, where where the United States was formed from people from all over Europe. So was England. The third item in Capre's list, they are very numerous. In the last two centuries, the United States increased from a mere handful to about 250 million people. In the last three centuries, the British Empire increased from 5 million to over 70 million Anglo-Saxons. And let me say that the United States is made up every bit as much from Germany than it is made up of people from England. Germany, that there were almost as many Germans in certain of our original 13 colonies than there were Englishmen, especially in New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and there were probably many more Germans who migrated to the United States subsequent to the founding of this nation than there were English. So, when we oversimplify things, we can give the wrong impression. The British Israel people, and I'm doing this because the British Israel people have always um, produced propaganda in order to convince us to despise Germans and label them as Huns or label them as Assyrians. And British Israel is not Christian identity and British Israel is not biblical Christianity. British Israel was a form, it, it was close to the truth, it was halfway there, but it was, it, it was picked up by certain people that used it to promote the British Empire and to justify English wars against the Germans, against the Scots, against the Irish, and the validity of British Israel is fully evident today because there's no more British Israel and there's no more British Empire. And that's sad that the British Israel people didn't have the whole truth, but there's no more British Empire because the English people have forever hated their own brethren. And British Israel was exemplary of that. Other nations, such as Germany, Austria, France... Italy, Spain, Ukraine, to give examples, have also exhibited the fulfillment of prophecies concerning Israel throughout history.
Now, of course, many areas of Europe are now race-mixed, mostly due to the Islamic conquests and, and other events of the past, but that does not mean that the people from the original stock of those nations are not Israelites. And at times, especially here, Compare seems to have been influenced by the narrow identification of Israel made by the British Israel writers, which was formed for those reasons that were more political than they were biblical and historical. Compare continues, Fourth, they expanded in colonies in all directions as Yahweh prophesied in Genesis 28, Deuteronomy 32, Isaiah 54, etc. Their lands are on every continent and in every sea. No other nations had such colonies. And that's absolutely true. It's true of Americans and Englishmen. But it's also true of Germans, French, Spaniards, and Portuguese. South Africa exists as a result of Dutch colonists. Dutch are still a very large segment of the white population in South Africa. The English came and stole it so that they could have the diamond mines, and they've destroyed the Dutch, and they still do. Quebec... The province of Quebec in North America is still very much French. In fact, I've been all through Quebec. And Quebec, I've never been to France, but from what I hear and read and see about France, I would believe that Quebec is probably more French than France. Of course, many of the colonies made by the Spanish and Portuguese especially fell victim to race mixing and Jewish treachery. The original white Russians also had colonies in the east and south of Asia, which they created by traversing the land. The English eventually ensured that none of their kindred nations could make or sustain their own colonies. The English wanted it all, but the English did so by warring against their own brethren under the flags of the Jewish bankers. The English Empire was built because the Jewish bankers got back into England in the days of Cromwell and financed the English Empire and were the chief impetus for the English Empire. The English served as cannon fodder for the Jewish bankers. Fifth, they possessed the desolate heritages of the earth, as Yahweh prophesied. In Isaiah 49a, Compare says, it is recorded, Thus saith Yahweh, in an acceptable time I have heard thee, and give thee for a covenant for the people to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate heritages. Who else has so successfully developed the waste places which were desolate when they first occupied them? And this is true. Even though much of the English Empire was driven by the Jews in the city of London, Remember that the children of Israel were in a period of punishment. They lived under tyranny because they were still in that period of seven times punishment as they were dispersed around the world. So wherever whites went, wherever the children of Israel went, 
they created civilization and even virtual paradise in spite of the fact that Satan was driving that beast, that Satan, that the Jewish usury was helping us to create these empires. In spite of that, wherever whites went, we create paradise. And this is true of the harshest places, such as South Africa, Australia, or even Iceland. No other race has that ability or that ambition. And the Jews could never finance Negroes to do those things, or Chinamen, or anyone else. Sixth, Compare says, they are a seagoing people. Yahweh said of Israel, his seed shall be in many waters. I will set his hand also in the sea, and his right hand in the rivers. The two greatest navies belong to the United States and Great Britain. The three greatest merchant marines belong to these two and Norway. And there's a note here which is apparently from Jean Snyder, who transcribed this from Compare's tapes, and she said that this was written, or actually it was a sermon which was given, before the United States destroyed their own merchant marine, which is absolutely true. But this was also true of many other Israelite nations throughout history. The Phoenicians were Israelites. The Carthaginian Phoenicians were Israelites. They had great navies destroyed by the Romans. The Romans were Israelites. The Celts of Britain and France had great navies until the Romans came and destroyed them and their navies. So we've always had great navies as a people. But the Germans, they tried to build the Great Navy, and the English destroyed it. The French and the Spanish and the Portuguese all had great navies. They were also, at one time, and today most of them are, most of them are highly questionable, most of them are really Arabs, but in their day, they were great Israelite nations with great navies. Compare's seventh point. They possess the gate of their enemies. Clearly, Genesis 22.17 refers to the gateways of hostile nations, the great waterways of the world. The two great Anglo-Saxon nations alone have power to close every important gate in the world and have done it in two world wars. And this is true. This is absolutely true, and it's been true of other Israelite nations throughout history, but in our day and age, it is true of the United States and Britain, except that since World War II, it has not been true of Britain. It's only been true of the United States. When um, England launched a war against Argentina in the 1980s, they were barely able to get enough men to Argentina to beat the Argentinians back out of the Falkland Islands if Ronald Reagan didn't step in to intervene and loan the English American bases and ports and shipping. The English would have lost to Argentina. They'd have lost the Falklands. England, ever since World War II, is um, not a first-rate sea power.
even if they have one or two aircraft carriers. Eighth, they maintain the continuity of the throne of David. This may have been true at one time, but today that's questionable. Compare says, it has been proven that all the kings of England, Ireland, and Scotland are descendants of King David of Israel, fulfilling the prophecy that David shall never lack a man to reign over the house of Israel. Many of the kings of England came from Germany and elsewhere on a continent. However, if the nations of Europe have always had a nobility which intermarried with their own and ruled over all of these nations, then they must indeed represent the house of David from prophecy. Nothing else explains the way that history has unfolded in this manner. Now, it is impossible to trace genealogies with certainty where historical records do not exist, but the fact that we have always had a layer of nobility ruling over us upholds the prophecy to be true. Compare concludes, Time allows me to give only a very few of the many prophecies about Israel, which have been fulfilled by the Anglo-Saxon and Scandinavian people and by no others. And we would say that that's not quite true. As we have pointed out, Compare admits all Germanic people as Israelites in others of his sermons. And from the 2nd century through the 4th century A.D., all of this was true of the Romans, and before them, it was true of the Phoenicians. At some times in the medieval period, it was true of the Spaniards. They, too, were all Israelites at that time. And he goes on to say, at least 100 of them, meaning those Old Testament prophecies, at least 100 of them have been found. When you consider that there are more than 100 recognized nations, the mathematical odds against all of these being fulfilled by just one small group of nations, all of the same blood, is billions to one. Obviously, the Anglo-Saxons are the Israel of today. And Copyright did very well with the sermon. If we understand that this sermon is a simple summary which we could take to hand to somebody who is not Christian identity or who is a neophyte or who is just being introduced to the message or who is adversarial to the message and we want them to read something short and simple and convincing and all of that is wonderful. But we will, um, we should not create doctrine from such a message. And we have to understand that all of Compare's sermons were written in that manner. They were written in order to introduce Christian identity to people who didn't know any of this. So we don't create doctrine from this. We take Compare's work and understand it in that context, and it's very good. Even if we who are advanced in this message have issues with it, 
we don't create doctrine from it because he's summarizing. He's drawing an outline. And because he's drawing an outline, many details are glossed over or omitted. So we can go a lot deeper. And that's the purpose of these presentations, to show that we can and we must go a lot deeper. We can appreciate Compare for what he did, but what he did doesn't have all those little necessary details which bring us to a full truth and understanding of Scripture. Clifton Emmerheiser writes um, concerning the good and bad figs of Judah, as I said I would offer and present Clifton Emmerheiser's critical notes as well. Concerning the good and bad figs of Judah, that is an important prophecy to understand fully, and Compre just glossed over it here. Clifton Emmerheiser added a lengthy note to his publication of Compre's sermon, which we shall now present. It's a couple of paragraphs, and Clifton says, Most people today, when they read or hear the term Jew, written or spoken, they do not differentiate between Jeremiah's good fig Judahites as opposed to Jeremiah's bad fig Jews. The King James Version has the bad fig Jews translated, and he's talking about Jeremiah chapter 24, as naughty figs. All this can be found explained in Jeremiah chapter 24 to examine from where these naughty figs came. A good explanation is given by the interpreter's one-volume commentary on the Bible by Charles M. Lehman on page 455, which makes the following comment concerning Hosea chapter 4, verses 10 through 19. The absurdity of bow worship, the whole harlotrous system of Baal Fertility, fertility rights is utterly ineffectual as well as degrading. Its purpose is to provide fertility for human beings, flocks and crops. But though the people play the harlot, meaning carry on the sexual fertility acts at the shrine, they do not multiply Despite woman's usual secondary place in ancient society, there will be no double standard, for the men are responsible for the shame of cult prostitution. It is they who require their daughters to become cult prostitutes, or literally holy women. And further on, concerning Hosea 5-7, in their bow worship, they give birth to alien children, verse 7 the offspring of sexual cult rights. For Hosea 5.7 says, They have dealt treacherously against Yahweh, for they have begotten strange children. And that's the end of Clifton's quote from Charles Lehman. <laughs> Excuse me. And Clifton says here, while Lehman here is commenting, commenting on Hosea, which applied to the northern house of Israel, Later, the southern house of Judah played the harlot to a greater degree. The half-breed children, born as a result of these illicit unions, and as my own note, I would say that Jeremiah describes that in Jeremiah chapter 2. The half-breed children, 
became Jeremiah's naughty figs. Jeremiah said in chapter 24, verse 2, The other basket had very naughty figs, which could not be eaten. They were so bad. Here, Jeremiah is using figurative language, having sexual connotations. In essence, he is saying that because some of the Judahites engaged in sexual union with the Canaanites, one dare not marry and have children with such mixed offspring. As every generation down line, they are just as rotten with no hope of cleansing. On the other hand, the good fig Judahites are those who didn't engage in sexual union with the Canaanites because of the general misunderstanding of the term Jew. I would advise that we started to designate naughty, the naughty figs as bad fig Jews and the pure-blooded members of the tribe of Judah as good fig Judahites. And that's one way to put it. Clifton concludes by saying, Compare made a misleading statement when he said, over a century later, Judah was deported to Babylon, not Assyria, for 70 years, as Jeremiah had prophesied. I know that Compare knew better, and this was probably just a momentary slip of the tongue, which we all make from time to time, and things necessarily have to be glossed over when you're giving a 20-minute summary of a 3,000-year history. That's the way it has to be. And he says, I bring this up because many identity teachers make the same error. For after Assyria was finished with Judah, all that was left was Jerusalem with its inhabitants. When Babylon came along, Judah was only a remnant of the original nation. Bertrand Compare, and that's the end of Clifton's remarks, Bertrand Compare did very well first time, but he did not write books and there were few citations in his sermons. His sermons were really more like informal lectures, which were never meant to be complete proofs or to be used as doctrinal dissertations. Rather, they serve as a guiding light one of several. There were a lot of other great early Christian identity teachers, which, blazing a trail, pointed the way to the truth of God for our benefit as we approach the last days and fulfill the prophesied Elijah ministry. We may learn much from Compare and other early identity teachers, but we have a responsibility to take up where they left off and to continue building our identity truth on a solid foundation. Early trailblazers made footpaths and wagon paths through the forests and meadows to reach a destination that they very often did not know. Later, those trails were replaced with paved roads and eventually with highways, developing and perfecting our Christian identity understanding we must follow that same progression. Thank you for listening.
Tomorrow night, Pastor Mark Downey, Dissident Racism, Part 2. Melissa and I are in Eureka Springs, Arkansas. I am not certain whether we will be back in Panama City for next week, for next week's program cycle. So, I will have to leave our schedule to be announced probably by Wednesday or Thursday. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night. Yeah.